Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Please note, this podcast is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, Edwina talks to John Podmore. John famously transformed HMP Brixton from being Britain's worst performing prison to being its most improved. Among many things, he's been a prisons inspector and governor, and he's a published author. Prison is filled with people who have been failed by society, he says, and they are all human beings. My name's John Podmore. I was in the prison service for about 25 years. I ran Brixton, Belmarsh and Swaleside. I was a prison inspector for a few years and I finally finished in 2011 where I was head of the Prison Services Corruption Prevention Unit. And when I left, I wrote a book about my experiences. Called? Out of Sight, Out of Mind, Why Britain's Prisons <clears throat> Are Failing, published by Bikeback, by six ninety nine, <laughs> available from Amazon. So my first question um, is, what on earth led you um, to want to become a prison governor? What was, what was that trajectory? Pure chance. Um, I was a secondary school teacher in East Sussex. I'd been teaching for eight years. I enjoyed it for two tolerated it for another four and then hated it. Had a young family, was kind of going nowhere. And I was in a nice classroom overlooking the sea, but I felt as ah, a danger, I'm going to be here for the next 40 years. So I started looking around for all sorts of things. And this was in the kind of mid eighties and you wouldn't think it now, but I used to do a bit of running in those days. I had a sports injury. I was in the hospital. I was reading the Guardian because that was all I had to do. This was the days before um, the internet and, and all. And, and I saw this advert for um, assistant prison governors. Um, so it was looking for second career people. Um, and if you were uh, over 25, which I was, um, you had kind of a year's, you had three months as an officer and then kind of two years on the job training. If you were under 25, you had to spend a year as an officer. So I applied um, and it was a really good um, interview process. Uh, it was, they called it the country house. Tech. You were away for three days and I was in Wakefield and there was all sorts of tests um, and role plays. Um, what sort of tests? What are, they, what are they looking for? 
Well, I think they were looking for kind of uh, people who could interact with people, who could think on their feet, who were they were looking for knowledge. I think they were looking for willingness to to learn. Um, it was very testing, but I came away not knowing whether I was going to succeed or not. But I came away thinking I kind of enjoyed that, and I felt that it had given me an opportunity to say who I was and what I was about. And um, sounds a bit trite, but I came away thinking, well, if they don't want me, then that's kind of the right thing. Can you describe to me your first day at work? And was the first time you went into a prison your first day of work? And what the feelings were when you saw the prison? Which prison was it? I'd been in a prison before because as a teacher, I worked for an organisation called the Workers' Educational Association. So I'd done some sort of night school teaching in a little prison in Sussex, which is, which is kind of now closed. So, I, But I didn't really know m- much. I, I, um, my first day was um, Maidstone in Kent because that was where I was kind of destined so, so my first walk around was Maidstone and it was an old Victorian prison and it was, you know, in the heart of the city. And did you sort of think, oh, my God, are we like, great, uh, you no, know, I'm, I'm kind excited of thinking, and or a well, bit well, of both? No, a bit of, a bit of excitement. It was interesting. Um, Conditions then in that prison were? The kind of uh, old Victorian, frayed at the edges. Reason. Adult men. Adult men, mainly lifers, sex offenders. So it was a well-known, well-established, middle-of-the-road, Catby training prison. And this was in the days of armed robbers and gangsters, and it was where the gangsters wanted to be after they'd done their cat A bit, because it was it was near to London and it was near to the railway station, so it was easy to get to. So. Right. It was a destination. A popular, a popular It was popular for those who'd spent a long time on the Isle of Wight. Right. Uh, and one of my earliest experiences, I'd, I'd not been at Maidstone. Oh, sorry, before I got to Maidstone, I had to do three months in uniform. Um, and to do that was in a different prison. So I had to sort of don the uniform and the, and the belt and the keys and the hat and none of which fitted. Um, <laughs> and uh, was then sent to HMP Lewis, where I worked on the landings for three months. So I then went, so I then went to Maidstone uh, as an assistant governor trainee in a suit, um, Marks and Spencer suit in those days. <laughs> so as a governor, what percentage of your time is in the office and what percentage of time is on the wings? I mean, I know it probably uh, varies from prison to prison and governor to governor, but is there, is there a sort of a general guidance on that? If I give you the experience when I started, uh, I was, uh, so I went to Maidstone, I was assistant governor and and all of a sudden I became the life liaison officer. So I was responsible for all the lifers, okay. um, which was a bit of a jump from, you know, teaching uh, economics in a school in, 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 in Sussex. And my office was on the wing. So it was a traditional kind of Victorian wing. And at the end of the wing on the way out were the staff offices. So prisoners had access to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and I spent a long time in those days writing, they were called F75, they were parole reports. So if you were a lifer in those days, and there were only 2,000 lifers in those days, I think there's something like about over 12,000 now with some form of indeterminate sentence. So a big part of my job was coordinating all their parole reports. Um, and we would have a um, like an internal hearing. So the governing governor would chair it. I would be the kind of secretary to it. Um, and I would bring together, we'd have a meeting in the boardroom. So there'd be someone from education, health, psychology, work, prison officers, 
personal officers and everyone would come in, we'd sit around the table and we'd formulate what we were going to write in preparation for this individual's parole review. And then the, the, the prisoner himself would come in and then I would pull all the reports together and, and I spent a lot of time doing that. And part of that was regularly day-to-day -day interviewing prisoners. And in those days there were what they call applications. So the governor would come to the to my office and a prisoner would make an app. I want to see the governor about something or other. Right. So so the, the daily contact with prisoners then was was huge. And was that good? It was tremendous. For me, it was a kind of steep learning curve because I all I knew was was seeing prisoners every day. Um, yeah. And they would go out to exercise and they'd kind of knock on the door and a cheery hello or a bit of abuse or, you know, something's wrong with the chips or mm. the heating's too hot or too cold or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they knew kind of who you were. And that yeah. was that that was that was healthy. And you were mixed with the staff. So I you know, I rarely left the wing. And how many men would have been in that prison? Sort of five hundred, a thousand? It was probably about five or six hundred. There was probably about two hundred lifers. There was a sex offender wing as well. Um, and in time I became responsible you know, I ran the sex offender wing as well. So in terms of what I was looking for, I mean, the levels of responsibility were were huge. I mean, I hadn't been there long, and I mentioned about the Isle of Wight. Um, and they said to me, um, oh, Ronnie Cray is in uh, at the Isle of Wight. And they said to me, we want you to go over and, and interview him and see whether he's ready to come down to a Category B and to come to Maidstone, which he clearly wanted to because it's close to London. So I'm thinking... You know, I'm six months out of a secondary school in <laughs> yeah. Sussex and I'm Can on the Isle of Wight Ferry <laughs> with a principal officer. Um, I, what did we do? So we went in there and I interviewed Ronnie Cray, which was an interesting experience. Why? Um, what, what was well, he was, he, it was then and, and is now one of the most kind of famous prisoners in the, yeah. in, in the system. Was he pleasant? Was he charismatic? Was he... Well, he was kind of smaller, more wizened less impressive than than you would have would right. have thought um but the conclusion i came to talking to him uh and staff around him let me be careful how i say this was not ready yet to move down to category b right um and there's one of the one of the books he wrote that there's that this kind of meeting is alluded to um, but for me, that was about, it was fulfilling what I wanted, which was greater levels of re responsibility. Oh, yeah, you certainly got that, didn't uh, you? <laughs> but in terms of, pres uh, you know, st um, governor-prisoner contact, you know, you move on now. Um, and it's that, that old cliche, gov you know, governing by wandering about. Um, and, you know, everyone talks about, you know, are governors on the wings enough? Are they interacting with prisoners enough? Um, and the answer will always be no. Um it's difficult it, now, I think, you know, there's more kind of, you know, managerial tasks to do. Mm. And yeah. actually the prisoners are locked up for longer. So governors can't see prisoners who are... No, uh, absolutely right. The, the prisoners are lock, locked to more. There's, there's, there's less in terms of association. Um, prisons I mean, are more violent today than they've ever been in the, the history of the prison service. Indeed. So is that a disincentive to walk around? I mean, at any point in time, you know, if you are the governor and you're walking around your landings and, um, you know, I tried to make a point, you know, people will say, did it? too much or too little. I mean, one of the most difficult things is if you're the governing governor of a prison is walking onto the far end of the threes landing 
at the very top of the wing because that's where... What does that mean in non-prison person? Well, that means you're on, on the top floor at the far end away from uh, any way of getting out. Okay, the top landing. Top landing, yeah. far end away from the stairs. Right. Which is where... So if you get cornered, you are screwed. Yes, yeah, you, you're, you're in a difficult position. You know, I, would, I, I, I would venture to suggest, yes. But it was also where, and it happens now, and we don't like to accept it, is that where prisoners are within the prison, which cells they're in, which wings they're on, who they're next to, who they're sharing a cell with, we think we control that. No, we don't. There's a degree of conditioning and manipulation around that we're not prepared to acknowledge um, and if you wanted to know where the individual influential prisoners were, they'd be on the top floor at the far end, ah, away from where the staff was. Or they'd be on the ground floor next to the staff tea room as a wing cleaner making the, the tea and the coffee for the staff. So there were two extremes of where the influential prisoners okay. were. So it was important for the governor to kind of get out and about to kind of do that. Um, when I was at Belmarsh, we had a an exceptional risk category A unit. So that was a 48-bed unit, which was the prison within a prison. And, and I was there just after the escape from Whitemore. Is so, that what they call a close supervision unit? Or is no, it, it was different to, it's different to that as yeah, well? The, okay. the close supervision units are different. The exceptional risk category A units were prisons within prisons. So there right. was one at Whitemore, which I think is still there. And this is literally a prison within a prison. Mm. It has... The, you know, two walls, gates, the, the same as the main prison have. And they are for... They are, they were then in those days, they were for the exceptional risk category A. So you've got... So for example, IRA... IRA these were the IRA tape, uh, escapists, serious drug dealers. These were the people who were deemed um, the greatest risk of escape and the greatest risk of impact on the public if they did escape. So the, end, the essence was on containment. Um, but the one at Belmarsh was 48-bed units, so it was four units of 12, and they were kind of just dead-end corridors. Um, so there'd be two staff in the in the wing itself. There'd be one in a secure bubble observing. And, you know, I would go in there. And in those days, the, the IRA had been very clever at conditioning and manipulating staff and had done it at the maze and you can read a lot about the maze at what they did at the maze in terms of staff creating no-go areas um and there was kind of a clever system of i mean i'd walk in as a governor you know they'd surround you they'd bombard you with questions uh and i would do it deliberately and and i would want the staff to not leave me on my own but to come in and to engage and we would video it well, everything was videoed. And then, you know, in staff training, we kind of analyze, you know, what's going on in terms of who's conditioning and manipulating who. Um, and, it, you know, in the maze, they created no-go areas. They made it so difficult for staff that there were, you know, arms of the H-blocks where, where staff just didn't go because it was unpleasant and it was difficult. And it was a kind of slow, steady process. Um, and, you know, there are apocryphal stories. I'm not sure they were that apocryphal where... You know, the, the prisoners would say, yeah, we're, there's, there's 70 prisoners in here, gov, you know, just write that down and go and go away. Right. And, and there was one particular occasion, they actually found someone who'd been murdered in the wing and they didn't find him for days. So it's important that, 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 sta that governors and staff are not just kind of wandering around, but they're kind of supporting each other. And, and it's kind of done with a purpose. You know, there is this phrase, you know, what, what, does, what does a good prison look like? 
Um, and you could have endless podcasts on measurements of performance. You know, but, but I'm a great believer in what does a prison feel like? You know, you, you go into prisons and you can you can feel changes just by going oh, yeah. in the gate. And you can feel the levels of dangerousness yeah, yeah. in the air. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't need an inspection. It doesn't need an audit. It doesn't need a, you know, people come in with clipboards. You can feel the the, the, the changes. And I, there's um, probably come across Mayor, Mayor Angelou. Um, and she has this great phrase, people will forget what you say, people will forget what you do, but they'll always remember how you make them feel. You know, and that for me is a great watchword in, in prison. I mean, it's, it's intangible. I mean, I remember at Brixton did a lot of stuff with, um, with arts and theatre and uh, percussion music. Um, and I was always, shall we say, um, interrogated by headquarters. Why are you doing that? Is it accredited? Does it work? Um, it might be doing harm. And when I got through the conversation of, well, how can I get it accredited? And I never got a response on that. You know, I was the governor, I was in charge. I was only funding it through charitable money, um, but the people felt better. Um, was it reducing reoffending? You know, could I, could I measure it? And that's the whole problem, as you know, with arts in prison, how do you measure success? But for me, uh, it you made... wanted to run a happy, safe prison, right? Yeah, yeah. If if people are feeling good, yeah, you know, maybe they'll listen to what you say. Maybe they'll do what you tell them to do. But you, it, it's getting that mindset. And and staff yeah. were not, uh, you know, I'd be getting in. I mean, we did something one Christmas. We did a Bart Christmas, and and one of my staff had su suggested this because we were doing a music in prison project. I mean, music in prison was brilliant. Yeah. Um, can you measure that? Well, no, you can't. Um, and we had BBC Philharmonic Orchestra came in. No one told me just how problematic that was because there were huge articulated lorries all over the place <laughs> and wires and I don't know, whatever. And lots of instruments, I imagine, instruments. that you could put drugs into. Well, oh, absolutely. You know. But but that's the irony. With something like that, people, they don't abuse it. Um, yeah. If you want to get drugs in a prison, we can talk all day about the ways. Well, it's not I was going to ask you about drugs in prison because, of it's course, it's not it through the a... BBC Philharmonic Orchestra. No. Um, so, on drugs in prison. Um, no, that it's... drugs in prison. <laughs> I was wondering whether I should say this, but I remember when I first met you was in Brixton Prison. Seventeen years ago. Yeah, something like that. Maybe you'd moved on, but I'm going to be really honest. I was on a wing, and you could smell marijuana. You know, but I think that's no secret. Michael Gove, when he was the Justice Secretary, took the cameras into um, one big London mm. prison and they actually filmed mm. a prisoner smoking weed. And the officer mm. said to the camera, what do you want me to do about mm. it? This prison's in meltdown. So there's a certain amount of drugs in prisons that everybody knows about. Of course, things have got really out of control in recent years through um, SPICE and what do they call them? NPS which stands New for... New Psychoactive Substances. Thank you. And there's lots of different ways drugs get into prisons. Can you list, from your point of view, as a governor who knows about these things, because we all think we know how they get in, mm -hmm. from your point of view, how did drugs get into prison? I will absolutely answer that. Just just wind it back. How do you stop getting drugs in prison? And you stop getting in drugs in prison when prisoners don't want them. That, that's the basic premise. Okay, so how do, how do they get in? My opinion, my view as a governor over 25 years... Um, as head of the anti-corruption unit for three years, is that the primary primary route is staff. Now, that's not to say that the prison services are washed with corrupt staff. Um, I headed up the corruption unit for three years. 
part of the uh, brief that I presented myself with was, um, hey, there's corruption in prison. Why wouldn't there be? There's mm. corruption in business, in politics, yeah, in there's sport. There's corruption everywhere. So get over it. Um, so let's acknowledge it. Let's look at why. In terms of a corruption melting pot, prisons are, are a perfect uh, environment for that to, 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 to prosper. Um, and let's say there were 100 corrupt staff in a cohort of prison staff, uh, and we're talking not just prison officers, but the whole, the whole gamut, 5% would be corrupt criminal by design. Uh, they might have joined to carry out criminal activity. Right. They might have joined and thought, here's an opportunity for criminal activity. The remainder, they fall into being conditioned and manipulated. Um, and in my book, you know, I've interview, interviewed a prisoner who, who explained, and it's not rocket science, the conditioning and manipulation process. And whilst that's existed for a thousand years, in the current climate where you've got a lot of young, inexperienced staff managing a lot of prisoners with less supervision, the opportunities are, are huge. So that's my view, that's my, my opinion. And I always say the biggest haul of drugs I've ever had was strapped to the legs of a prison officer. Really? Uh, we suspected him, we did a sting, we found him, we caught him. Um, he was arrested by the police and then the police phoned me the next day and said, we've got some bad news for you. And I said, what's, what's that? He said, well, this guy who's your officer, he was a prisoner in Wilmwood Scrubs three years ago. Oh. Ah, okay, that's not helpful. Um, maybe we need to discuss how he got through his selection. Yeah. They phoned me the next day and said, I've got some more bad news for you. I said, oh, how much worse can this get? And they said, he's an illegal immigrant. I said, excuse me? He's an illegal immigrant. So um, prisons leak like a sieve in terms of uh, media and so on and so forth. So the next day, I think it was in one of the national... Um, Brixton employs asylum-seeking thief was the, was the headline. <laughs> oh and of course, none of it was my fault, Your, your Honour. Yeah. Um, but a prison member of staff, uh, I mean, visitors get kind of labelled with, oh, they're, they're a big source. Visitors do, but the amount they can bring it is not a lot. Yeah. So um, then if we skip forward to sort of uh, when Rory Stewart was the prisons minister, David Gork was the justice secretary, there was a big drive to try and put drug scanners in prisons, which seems to me uh, like an eminently sensible thing to do. I understand there's problems with architecture, how you get these things in. Of course, everyone says the money. But that aside, the general premise is a good one, is it not? If the staff and the families going to visit prisoners go through them, you you know, if you're going to get on an aeroplane, no one kind of goes, well, I'm not going to walk through the scanner. It's like you're getting on an aeroplane. We all have to be safe. You go through the scanners. What's your view on that? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's let's put scanners. Let's do, let's put all the technology in. But, yeah. but there's a real danger with technology. These are human problems. These are people problems. Mm. Technology can help. It's like a little step on the journey to trying to make a drug-free prison because of course now it's drones and it comes through the post and you know letters and stamps are soaked in acid so there's loads of different ways obviously indeed um, how and they come in but you know the scanners seemed like quite a sensible yeah, they're, they're, step they're, yeah they're, they're they're a great idea um drones is a complete sort of you know red herring um if you've ever tried to fly a drone, you try flying it with a weight of stuff to a prison cell window and negotiate yeah. your way in. There has been incidences, hasn't oh, there, yes, where... Yes, yes, But are you saying the majority of drugs don't come in in drones, even if 
a small proportion no, what, do. What, what, I'm, what I'm saying is um, I have an opinion based on a kind of reasonable amount of experience where most come in. Now, um, go back to the basic premise. If you want them not to come in, you've got to you've got to look at why prisoners are wanting them. And certainly a lot of apocryphal stuff around why prisoners are taking spice the way they do. Um, well, I think I said it on some radio station. You know, if I was locked up in a large toilet with someone I've never met before for 23 hours a day, give me some mind-altering yeah, substance, absolutely, please. Um, absolutely. Just to get through the day. But... It, I mean, there's a, there's a contraband problem, and it's about drugs, and it's about mobile phones, um, and we can talk endlessly about how they're getting in. Um, you know, my challenge has always been that um, okay, let's talk mobile phones. Now, if you um, forgive the uh, putting people off their lunch, but if, you know, if you uh, find on a one of these scanners, there's a prisoner's got a mobile phone up his bottom. Mm. You know the method by which that's come in, so you can okay. This this month we found ten phones up ten bottoms. Okay, if you find a hold all on a wing in an area that's pride predominantly occupied by staff that's got 150 mobile phones in, SIM cards and drugs, and that has happened, I can assure you. One has to say, ah, is that down to visitors? Is that down to... Um... Didn't come out of someone's bottom. No, no, no. <laughs> Pass me a tissue. Um, so, you know, my chance for service is, if, if, before you start solving the, the, the problem with technology, you know, what is the nature of, of the problem? Um, and, you know, in terms of staff corruption, um, it's a problem. Uh, I mean, I left because my unit was closed down in 2011. The anti-corruption uh, unit. Yes, it was It was a, called the Corruption Prevention Unit. Um, and we were a kind of a small unit. Why was it closed down? No more problems with corruption? Well, I, I assumed I I'd... You, you did, did, did I such a good job, you put yourself out of one. I assumed I'd cracked it. Um, this year, they've um, set up a counter-corruption unit. How's um, that different? Uh, anti-corruption me one on versus sport. counter-corruption. It's set up to do a similar thing, well, I presume. Well, I, no, I think there is a subtle difference. You know, counter-corruption, um, I was at a seminar on counter-corruption in Cambridge yesterday in the Institute of Criminology. Um, the counter-corruption, the emphasis there is on chase and catch, get the bad guys, which is kind of important. But corruption prevention is about pre prevention. And certainly when I was running a unit, um, you know, I put out a regular bulletin, which was we, who we've caught and what happened and so on and so forth. And staff liked that because they felt something was being done. But I tried to balance that with, hey, we've got to stop this happening. We've got to prevent it because, you know, on the premise that the vast majority are conditioned and manipulated into it. And I prosecuted a case when I ran the unit and it was a young, she wasn't a prison officer, she was auxiliary officers they called them in those so she had about two weeks training she was working in the education department and she was working alongside an orderly inverted commas a trusted prisoner who was a serious organized criminal drug dealer um and within 10 minutes she was in love and bringing in phones and drugs and the whole kit and caboodle um and it didn't take an awful lot to catch her she went to court and she was given a suspended sentence now the team that i led that caught her we're incandescent. Why a suspended sentence? But, you know, we kind of sat down and, and what the, the judge kind of lambasted is, well, 
what were you doing to support this woman? Um, she was young, she was inexperienced. Were you supervising her? Was she trained properly? And in the corruption kind of world, we, we get caught up in um, catching the bad guys and girls, but there are corruptors. There are prisoners who are organizing the corruption. And mm -hmm. I interviewed one for my book and they're very good at it. And do we know who they are? I think we do. They're not difficult to, I mean, I could right. take you into a prison tomorrow, give, give me the morning and I'll tell you who the, the most likely people are. And what the judge was saying, were you managing this individual? Were you managing that relationship? And, and he, he was absolutely right. Um, there was a case you know, a few days ago, there was a woman, she got pregnant and had a baby by, uh, by a prisoner. Uh, and she's got, I think, a, a couple of years. So it's, it's kind of a difficult one. But given the nature of prisons, given the problems that we've got at the moment with inexperienced staff, uh, supervision, violence and drugs, Going after the bad guys and girls kind of, yeah, makes feel good, but you've got to stop that, that happening. Be, you've got to look at what measures you're putting in place in an environment where corruption will naturally proliferate to kind of to stop it, to prevent mm. it. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of, in a sense, I'm kind of worried with counter-corruption. I, I prefer corruption prevention. Um, well, surely it should be the whole spectrum. It, Why just do one slice of the job? It, it's, a, it's like with drugs. It's about demand and supply. Yeah. Um, you want to stop the supply of drugs coming in, um, but you've also got to look at look at the demand. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a big issue, the whole issue around spice. That's less. Ab that's about the market, the drugs market. It's a business. It's about profit and loss and and risk and. Serious organised crime, seriously well organised in prison. You know, there's a market. There's um, there's money to be made, and I think we don't do enough to kind of look at that in the round in terms of the market, the organised criminal networks, vulnerability of staff, so on and so on and so forth. But it's yeah, it's kind of bad, and yeah, I don't see much in terms of it getting better anytime soon, which is a bit negative. But you're listening to Justice with Edwina Grosvenor. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when you were in Maidstone, you said you were in charge of the sex offenders unit or the sex offenders wing. Can you sort of talk a bit more about the world of sex offenders and their sort of extra challenges that that might throw up? Huge challenges with sex offenders. One of the one of the first elements is, is a definition. How do you define a sex offender? You may get a husband who murders a wife. It may be a sexual component, but they wouldn't necessarily end up in a sex offender wing. Um, there are there those who are there for preying on children, paedophiles, rape. A stranger rapist is a sex offender, uh, as is a predatory paedophile, but they're very, very different people to, to manage and, and deal with. Um, for me as an individual, you know, new, raw, raw, young assistant governor, having to read about the offence, as as we did, and as people do now, you know, pro board members are you know reading um, some fairly heavy stuff. Uh, is you know how do we manage that from a kind of care and welfare point of view? Um, you know, I spent weeks and weeks reading some things I don't really want to try and remember. Um, pro board members are doing it all the time. Prison officers, um, uh, offender supervisors are. Do we ask enough about the impact of that? There were some legal cases some many years ago where there were some prison officers who were um, taking part in sex offender treatment courses uh, uh, and had been traumatised by it. Um, You know, PTSD. uh, And that's what's known as sort of the vicarious trauma, isn't it? Being around that level of trauma and not being able to process it. Yeah. 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 In terms of how you manage them as a group, you know, we've wrestled for years with do you have them in a separate unit or do you try and mix them into the mainstream? I mean, over 25 years, we've kind of tried everything. Mm, because then there's a problem, isn't there, of trying to mix them into the mainstream because the other prisoners don't want to be around what they call the nonces. No, but if you're a six foot four um, predatory rapist built like a brick outhouse, you'll survive on the wing. Right. You know, if you're five stone wet through paedophile, you won't survive probably even in a in a sex offender treatment unit. Right. Um, so there are there are those issues in terms of how you manage them. I mean, I think one of the dangers, uh, we've tended to have them in wings in units. Um, and I think there's a, there's a danger in that because a lot of sex offenders are consummate groomers of individuals. And there's a real danger that if you've got a, I mean, I could take you to a sex offender wing anywhere and it, it will probably be relatively quiet, not much violence very few um, incidents, it'll be clean, it'll be neat, it'll be tidy, it'll be well-ordered, and we'll kind of feel okay. Um, But then one one has to ask the question, is it quiet by design or is it quiet by default? Are the staff being groomed? At the end of the day, if you've got a sex offender wing, you're locking people up to protect the public, but you're also locking them up, uh, and within that period of confinement, you should be challenging their behaviour. And there's real danger in a sex offender treatment unit or a sex offender unit, we'll talk about treatment in a moment, that um, you know, prison officers w- want a day without hassle. 
So if you've got a day without hassle in the sex offender unit, you're kind of, well, yeah, that's okay. But then you've got to stop and think, well, oh, hang on a minute, what's going on behind the the scenes? Um, and not just sex offender units, um, across prisons in general, you know, we don't want to talk about sex in prison. Uh, Howard League did a report, which the prison service didn't want to um, cooperate with. But, yeah, you know, about sex in prison, in co- coercive, male prisons. Coercive sex in prisons, prisons. Yeah. but, you know, does it go on? Yeah. It's a bit like corruption. Well, you kind of think it does, really. Yeah, well, we know So, it so how do we manage it? So there are lots of complexities there. Um, and then you get into the, the treatment, what I describe as the treatment industry, and people don't like me calling it the treatment industry. You know, we've had sex offender treatment for many years. There was some research that came out recently that said it was actually making it worse. Um, and I think at the moment, without going into too much detail, there are serious questions to be asked about the efficacy of sex offender treatment, about the research into it. We spent a lot on it. There's a lot talked about accreditation. I mean, I've raised some questions relatively recently on there is an accreditation panel. So treatment, be it for sex offender treatment or anger management or thinking skills, these courses are supposed to be accredited by an accreditation panel. Um, Within the Ministry of Justice? Uh, allegedly. Right, okay. Um, part, uh, the panel used to meet and write annual reports, and that's not happened since 2011. I'm not sure who's on the accreditation panel. I bumped into someone who should remain nameless, and they mentioned in passing that I think I am, um, but no one's spoken to me about it for a, a, okay. long, a long period of time. Someone we both know, I think, was, was it Penelope? Um, did a, a parliamentary Penelope Gibbs, Gibbs, who we've had on the podcast. Who did a PQ, um, we talked about it, a PQ in terms of who's on the accreditation panel. And I think the names were published. Um, but one then has to ask is, uh, who do they answer to? Who pays them? What skills and qualifications? How are they selected? How are they changed? So, so I think in terms of the, the treatment industry, I mean, I, I think we are long overdue for an independent review of the treatment that we're carrying out. Um, the costs of it, the effectiveness of it, having research into it. And, and research is difficult. You know, the, the holy grail of research is a randomised control trial. How do you do a randomised control trial on sex offenders who may never get out? Um, how do you do a three-year reconviction study on people who've been you... in for 40 years and are going to die in prison? Yeah. But at a time of stretched resources, you've got to look very carefully at what you do and, and how you do it and how much you spend. And if I've got a criticism of the prison service, I've got a lot of criticisms of the prison service, but I like to think they're constructive. It should be around independent scrutiny. There's too much marking of your own homework, I think. Right. Isn't that what the Independent Monitoring Board should be? There's another big question on what is the role of the Independent Monitoring Board. I mean, I've worked with them for years. I've still got people like old friends um, who uh, were on my Independent Monitoring Board. Um, And I worked with a lot of boards, some fabulous members, and they would challenge the hell out of me. They would really put me through, you know, and I I had many uh, IMB meeting you know, and they were kind of roasting me alive, as, as they were required to do. Um, I don't know, I'm out of the loop now. I kind of, you know, I worry when Peter Clark goes into a jail. The Chief Inspector the of Chief prisons. Inspector of Prisons issues an urgent notification, which is, this prison is so bad, it is so out of control, it is so inhuman and degrading, 
I'm putting you on notice here and now you must do something. One then has to ask, well, if Peter Clark has gone in and he, you know, he will go in every two years, he might go back. He's not going in frequently. Um, what has happened with the independent monitoring board, with the regional manager, with the regional manager's manager, with the regional manager's manager's manager? Well, to allow the, a prison to fall in su into such disrepute. Why has it taken chaos? Peter Clark, chief inspector of prisons, to say this prison is so unsafe, I'm not going to wait three months for my report to be published. I'm telling you here and now, it is in a, it is in crisis. Mm. And in your opinion, other things have failed. Well, other things have failed. An abject failure. Throughout. Well, I, um, I mean, I was reading the report today on on, on Bristol. Now, um, Bristol was allegedly in special measures. So the prison service had acknowledged that it was in difficulty. It was in special measures, which I know not what that means. Um, but Peter Clark goes back in and says, well, he doesn't know what the special measures were. I mean, he's asked them what they comprised of and what was done, and he was told nothing. Um, and he goes back and it's, 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 it's in crisis. Now, the odd governor will be thrown under the bus. Which doesn't really fix the problems. No, um, and it may well be that um, you know the, the governor has to take some culpability. Um, but when you've got a lot of tiers of management and um, measurement and audit and, and all the rest of it, one has to ask, why does it take a chief inspector to raise that level of concern? And he's done it with with half a dozen prisons now with, with, with Liverpool. Um, and it's nice to see Liverpool on the mend and, and prisons yeah, can be absolutely. put back. But again, part of that is, um, and you will see it, um, is the uh, length of tenure of governors. Now, for a for me, central to how we get the prison system right is the prison governor, the, the person in charge of that prison. And if you don't like the heat, get out of the kitchen. And there are some excellent governors out there. There are some who are struggling and there are mm. some who probably really should should find somewhere else to go. And, and what the, the proportions average, are, I don't know. The average turnover is about three years. Was that we, the same in We don't day? know. We don't know because okay. no one's asked that question. It takes a governor a year to, to walk your way around a, a jail. Um, and in terms of affecting the culture, I mean, a governor shouldn't be there less than three years. Ideally five. And I know there can be burnout and I know there can be difficulties, but that has to be be kind of built in. And I worry now more than I ever did in terms of succession planning for, for, for prisons. Um, I mean, HMP Berwyn is, is, is a good example. Now it's being- the Big super prison up in the big uh, super Wrexham prison, in North yes. Wales. And it was opened and run for someone, by someone for about 18 months. Um, and they left and there was some controversy about the leaving, but that's kind of neither here nor there. So after 18 months, that governor was replaced. Now. He was replaced by someone who I know and I have a huge amount of respect for, but came from the private sector. Um, very good, very capable man, and, and he he will he will do positive things with with, with Berwyn. Uh, used to be in the public sector, um, went to the private sector, and has, has come back in. And there's nothing wrong with that, but one would have to ask that the HMP Berwyn is our newest, most prestigious prison, still only half full or half empty, depending on your size of your glass. <laughs> Um, why that wasn't why it wasn't a succession plan of for me if if I was still in the system aspiring to run the biggest newest most prestigious prison I think there are a lot of issues with Berwyn but you know why did that not come from someone internally what is that saying about 
succession planning, the cadre of governors, ambition. I, I don't know. I just yeah, find it very, very strange. At a time when HMP Wellingborough is being built at a cost of £253 million, I think. Yep. Um, and I wonder if these things are being thought about and actually if there's such pressures on the system and they keep saying we need new prisons then why is Berwyn half empty still well that, that's a big and question. that depends on who you speak to because actually some people kind of go oh it's not that's just hearsay I don't know because I haven't been to it well but, there was Peter Clark chief inspector published a report recently where I think that was that was that was confirmed right um, but I mean for me with Berwyn and with Wellingborough there are there are huge design issues. Uh, I mean, should we be building new big Titan prisons? My opinion is no. Well, we know that big isn't the best way to go no, and it's no. very difficult to manage. I mean, one of the big problems at the moment is in, in the prison system is we talk about the prison population and everyone says, no, we need to reduce the prison population. So you reduce the prison population in two ways. You stop people coming in, but you get people out. It was interesting, the um, the crime and punishment program was on... on oh, on uh, Channel 4. Yeah, you know, Rod, Roger Grape's program. And yeah. I know Roger Grape's sort of filmmaker, particularly in prisons. Some serious questions there about... Okay, it was focusing on IPP, indeterminate sentence, these kind of crazy life sentences that have now been abolished. But there are a cadre of three or four 4,000 people who are locked into these, you must prove you're safe to be released. Mm, which they um, can't. Which, 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 which they can't. And there was one poor guy there. Well, um, his probation officer was not allowed to attend the parole hearing. Um, he'd had four probation officers in four years and never met them. So how does that help you prepare for release? Now, for me, rather than build big Titan prisons, I mean, we release 60,000, 70,000 prisoners a year. So the vast majority of the prison population of 80,000 is pretty close to release. So if you're close to release, the problems that you face and the system faces in terms of getting you out is about the transition. So if we're going to build, if we've got hundreds of millions to build a Wellingborough or a Berwyn, well, we haven't got enough approved premises. You know, if you go before a parole board, you know, one of the key elements is, well, particularly if you're high risk, well, you can only get to an approved premise if you're high risk. So if you're medium risk, you can't get to... So we need more approved premises. Um, I would argue we that's need... that's out in the community. It's out in the community. I would argue that we need more open prisons, but not in rural Sussex or the wilds of the Isle of Sheppey. I would put a open prison in a city centre. Um, you could call it a hostel. You could call it a... Tra you, what, the problem is if you call it a prison, people start getting, ooh, we could prison next door. Yeah. Transitional facility, uh, proved premise. It's it's the transition into the community uh, that, that's kind of failing, and the privatisation of probation system uh, kind of blew all that apart. You know, if there are millions to be spent, spend them on the transition. You know, they they're going to build a new one uh, alongside Full Sutton. Now, Full Sutton, the wilds of beautiful Yorkshire, nice little village called Pocklington. I'm sure they wouldn't be want to be described as in the middle of nowhere, but to build a huge resettlement prison in Yorkshire in the middle of nowhere. How do you resettle? Well, you resettle through release on temporary license, going out to work. Having um, links with the community. Having links with the community. Being... And one of the best ways of getting a job is to start on rottle, show that you haven't got two heads and liable to steal everything in sight, that you're actually a good, honest, decent worker. You're probably more loyal than anyone else because you're grateful for the opportunity. 
that's how you transition people, not by having a fractured probation system and huge prisons in the middle of nowhere in, in, in Yorkshire. Mm. Um, and this emphasis on, you know, I say getting people out, only if they're safe to do so, but there's a real risk, and it was inherent in Roger Gray's programme, that you're on an IP, these are people who are way over tariff. Now, they're not being released because they're seen as a risk to the community. Well, were they always a risk? Or is this continued negative incarceration made them more of a risk is it well, making absolutely. them worse you know and that's why i think um the program is so brilliant and it's it's running over it's a five-part series isn't it having a look at the justice system mm. in its entirety in hampshire um but it should be really celebrated that it went out because it was very brave of um hampshire to do it but it really showed i think very clearly the problem certainly of the indeterminate sentence for public protection how it's making mm. people more dangerous to themselves it is really making them more dangerous towards the staff so therefore they will of course be more dangerous when they come out mm. so then mm. surely it is someone's job within government to say this madness must end we cannot allow the taxpayer to be investing in these prisons where fundamentally they are paying for people to become more dangerous. Yeah, I'll vote for you. Yeah, We could talk all day really and all night and all week. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. It's been brilliant to chat about all these sort of issues with you. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is co-produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company and Pencil Agency. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.